Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined across the world by Courtney Nguyen. Nothing can keep us apart. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Konnichiwa. Konnichiwa. Yo, what's up? I don't even know how they say hi in Boston. They just probably sound really aggressive and annoyed about it. But I'm in Boston. You're in Tokyo. How's life? Life is good. Life is good now that I'm in Tokyo and no longer having to rely on a reliable VPN uh, to sign on to the internet that I know and love. Right. So yeah, so that is so far much better. Um, here's a tip: never fly China Eastern Airlines. Don't do it, folks. Brutal, absolutely brutal uh, series of flights to get here to Tokyo yesterday. But I'm here now. I'm spending the week with family. A uh, little bit of R and R before Singapore. So nothing to complain about. You couldn't get a direct flight from Beijing to Tokyo. Not for cheap. Okay. So it's kind of one of those, like, you get what you pay for, but at the same time, if I knew that I was going to be getting what I got, I would not have paid for that. <laughs> like, That's I would fair. have, you know, spent a little bit more, you know, because, like, in the States, you can take, like, budget airlines, and they're not all bad. Like, JetBlue's great. Um, Virgin America is fantastic, actually. Uh, yeah, so they're, you know, we have cheaper airlines, and it's fine, but this was one of those, like, situations where I had two flights, and... The airline, like, you had to take a shuttle out onto the tarmac for each one, and then you got on, and the plane was super hot, and then each one was delayed for an hour that you were sitting sweltering on this hot plane. There were just a lot of different things that were wrong with this whole situation, Um, and it was very, very frustrating, and it was a level of service that was far lower than just standard airlines, so it was a bit... um, a bit peevy, but uh, <laughs> but I got in at the end, so it's all good. I'm sure that Japan's customer service will put you right at home and everything wonderful. Um, in the meantime, let's talk about everything that's happening so far in WT Asia. You were, we haven't talked since WT Asia really got underway uh, with Wuhan and Beijing, and also the guys are in Beijing too, and Tokyo uh, for significant tournaments there. Uh, what are your and obviously all of this plays into the race to Singapore, out of which Serena has pulled out since we last were on the show together. So let's talk about any of that in any order. Let's first talk with I guess how you think overall Singapore is shaping up. I think that the fact that it's been a very tight race has been exciting. It's been fun. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. You know, like every day to have to update scenarios. I mean, it's been exhausting. And I was joking with my. Uh, boss at uh, the Steve Simon. WTA. No, Kevin Fisher. That's also new. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, we haven't spoken since Steve's been appointed as well. That's yeah. true. Uh, but we were just kind of joking about how, like, you know, we've been trying to make the whole RTS Road to Singapore process much more transparent, you know, with these kind of daily live leaderboard updates and explaining scenarios and things like that uh, to a level that we haven't, I don't think the WTA has done before, which has been great because I think that it's been, it's got people pretty interested in it at the same time like having to field the constant repetitive scenario questions like the 30 different over the course of like 48 hours like what does venus have to do to qualify for singapore like that sort of stuff i'm like this is the other this is the flip side of it um but yeah no but it's been good and i think that with um you know some of the the surprising runs that we've seen in asia and some of the the other surprising results obviously with the three that had already pre-qualified in in serena uh simona and maria pulling out 
uh, effectively of Asia with injuries left and right. Uh, you know, that's all one thing. But uh, but some of the other results, you know, Garbina Muguruza, that was pretty surprising, I thought. Um, I did not expect her back-to-back no. weeks in um, in Wuhan, making the final there, retiring in the final to Venus, and then winning the biggest title of her career at the China Open. Venus? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, there's just been, like, a lot of, like, very surprising things to Maya Baczynski. So it's been it's been pretty fun, I have to say. It's been a lot of fun. And it's been – I haven't seen, obviously, tons of it because I haven't gone full China on my sleep schedule uh, entirely. <laughs> but I've seen more than I probably should have. And, uh, yeah, Venus, let's start with her winning Wuhan. It seems to be pretty fast courts. Wuhan Bolden is the phrase uh, for – Petra and Venus now winning back-to-back Wuhan titles, or the two Wuhan titles that have existed. Uh, and the two runner-ups in Wuhan. Were both Wimbledon finals. Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. So it uh, seems to play fast, and Venus came out and had a great week, uh, survived. I got I mean, I, the final wasn't much because Muguruza clearly was in no shape to play, but Venus wasn't in great shape either, so it was just sort of a bit of a war of attrition <laughs> that Venus outlasted. Um, Venus had a couple really tough matches. Johanna Conta, talk about random out of nowheres. No Johanna Conta's, uh, and I know obviously if you listen to any British tennis, this is why all you've been hearing for the past few weeks, few weeks, but her really U.S. Open on has been absurd. Just absurd. She's lost two matches. It's crazy. And she was two really, re- I mean, I mean, many British people are saying now, like, we always knew she had potential. No, they Bull didn't. Money. They did Come not. On. She was never talked about as anything. And she's playing so well right now and has this really weird sort of autopilot going on it seems like to me that she's just in a zone like her her, she's mentally so locked in and it worries me that that might end i mean i don't know how sustainable this is because she's never done anything like it before but wow is she playing like legitimately top 20 caliber tennis when she goes out there right now oh totally legit and i totally agree with you there's a clarity with what she's doing on the court right now that is just impeccable um and you my biggest concern when i see players playing that well and I agree with you in your read on, on Kanta, it's just, it's just autopilot. She yeah. just knows exactly what she wants to do out there is, is injuries, right? The, to me, that is what will derail it. And so I, I've kind of been checking in on her relatively frequently when I, when I talk to her, you know, how's the body holding up, how physically, because, you know, when you go, when you go through a run like this, your body has never played really this, the, this many matches in this confined amount of time for me for right? me like for you... me the content concerns are more mental for me because i mean it just seems like because she hasn't done this for so long it seems like she'll sort of snap out of it maybe it's physical and sort of a rookie of the year sort of way where she suddenly doesn't know how to play and has to get by with a moon ball or whatever like in the yeah, dramatic I, scenes I don't of that know, movie though. but i mean having spoken to her i just kind of feel like she really is that level-headed Good. about everything and that she um has kind of made this transition. And again, maybe, you know, again, it's a question of sustainability, both from a mental and physical perspective. But that, you know, I asked her in Wuhan, I was like, if we were, you know, when I watch you play, you know, you're incredibly composed out there, even in these epic three-set battles. Like, if I were to pull tapes from your junior days, like, would I see this same level of composure? And she was like, oh, God, no. Like, she's like, you know, like, she admitted, like, she's an incredibly emotional person. And she's kind of done a fetterer almost and, and tried to con- uh, control that, um, tried to, so much of it is just, I mean, she started working with a sports psychologist and um, there's, there is kind of a philosophical bent to the way that, that she's kind of approaching her game these days. And it, it is rather refreshing. It's very rational and reasonable, which is pretty refreshing. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Totally, totally right for 
Kanta, and she came up out of nowhere, probably enough about her, Venus getting a biggest title in five years. I think this really, sh- and then that put her into the Singapore conversation, which I really was happy about because especially with Serena out, I think for having a Williams there would have been awesome. And it would have underscored how great Serena, uh, Venus's year was and how much better it would have been without Serena blocking her at her two best slams, Wimbledon nope. and the No doubt event. about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. I asked her that, actually, uh, after she she won the title. I said, you know, watching you play this week, you know, has there ever been a moment this year where you've really lamented the fact, uh, you know, that you got the draws that you got, specifically referring to to running up against Serena um, this year? And and I was actually quite surprised that Venus bought into it. No, it's not like her. It's not like her at all to like kind of make excuses or to feel bad for herself or anything like that. But but this was entirely fair. I mean, I say that insofar as like sometimes Venus won't buy into what is the very obvious explanation for a situation. Yeah. Uh, and so in this situation, like when she, I asked her, she was like, yeah, it's like she said it was really tough, you know, because you would look across. I would look across and see nothing happening in the other side of the draw. And meanwhile, I had to like deal with what I had to deal with on mine. But, you know, you deal with it and it's it's whatever. And hopefully I put myself I keep playing well enough to put myself in a situations where, you know, the odds have to break in our favor and we get put on opposite sides of the draw at yeah. some point. But but it was a telling moment, I thought, because she 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 bought into that that explanation and that kind of uh, excuse for her season, I suppose, because Results wise, she's been playing great tennis. She just hasn't put on hard court, especially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She just hasn't posted the results. And how can you post results when you're running up against the number one player in the world no, constantly? No, I totally agree. And she did not have a great stretch of the year, really, between, with the exception of Wimbledon, like from Charles. She was in Charleston, right? So from Charleston to, or not maybe which wasn't Charleston, but anyway, from Clay to before New York, she didn't have a great stretch at all. Yeah, that's she, why. Uh, that's why she's not in the rate in Singapore already. Yeah. But she's, but she's coming much better now and she's in the conversation. Uh, and yes, yeah, and she's one of those names in there who you, who's playing well at the right time that you'd want to see her in Singapore. And I will say yep. bluntly, that does not go for everybody in the running here. Most, especially Carlos Suarez Navarro, who is still in the conversation. I think she's in ninth right now in the race. Ninth or 10th. Yeah. Somewhere right on the area. bubble, but she's going to be, she's one of the few players left in contention who will be playing Moscow or set to currently play Moscow, which is the most point-heavy tournament left uh, on the board. It's the last premier event. Um, and she had, had such a huge losing streak, even though she had great runs in Miami and Rome, making finals both those places. I don't know. It just feels like for some players, Singapore, I don't know, should it really be a year, you know, year-to-date, 12-month reflection? Or do you want to reward? I wish, like, you know, college football voting, I guess, does reward results later in the season more. Feels like oh, Singapore I totally should work that. Well, I don't, I don't. I mean, I just. I'm not saying they should change the rule. I'm just saying setting up for this event because Paul, you get doesn't the, feel like a top eight player at all. But here's the thing, though. You get the flip side of it. Of like, you look at like the ATP finals last year, and you see what Andy Murray had to do to kill himself to qualify and get himself into London, and he was wiped. I mean, just, you know, we could get a situation here where Venus or uh, or Garbina or a Bachinski or any of those Panetta. Um, I don't know, Pliskova, like some of these kind of like random players that are still in the running, that they go and absolutely kill themselves all the way through the end and then they show up to Singapore and like completely 
you know, have nothing left. And we've seen that happen at the year-end championships on both the women's and the men's side before. So, no, I mean, I, I do think that you should be rewarded for qualifying early. It means that towards the end of the season, if you are a player like a Simona Halep or a Maria Sharapova, you can feel a twinge and say, you know what, I'm shutting it down until Singapore and then show up hopefully to the year in championships and play some of your best tennis. But, you know, just waiting or favoring the players that do well in the end. I mean, Mukarutsa really was running on fumes in, in, in Beijing. I was impressed by what she was able to do there to win. Um, and I think that it was kind of one of those achievement unlocked runs, kind of like a Halep when she did that in Toronto and Cincinnati where it was like, hey, guess what? You can win matches, lots of matches, while not playing absolutely your best or being physically 100%. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, how serious are any of the injuries? Can she, you know, uh, get better? I mean, there's always going to be wild cards going into and X factors going to uh, going into the year ends. But, you know, we'll see. Do you think anybody is going in there without question marks? That's the thing. That's what makes this what makes might make Singapore fun in a weird way, it's that it's a total free-for-all. We can get to Serena not being in there after this part, but I don't think anybody's going in there with with no reasons to doubt themselves. Yeah, no, I think it's probably the most wide-open, regardless of the field that's set. Um, it'll be one of the most wide-open fields, um, year-end fields, that we've seen in a very long time. Um, I'd have to go back and look, you know, at the actual fields at different ones, but... Um, it feels like, you know, in the past, we kind of, especially once Serena kind of got her comeback in gear, that she looked, you know, in really strong position. Uh, maybe back in that 2011 year, that that Kvitova year, um, that was pretty wide open, I think, if I recall. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, this one, this one's open. I, I think it'll be interesting. I, I just really, I just really want to, as many players to be rested there. Um, than, than not. And so, you know, even though this whole RTS is really fun and, oh my gosh, it could go down to the wire, I really hope it doesn't. I really hope we get our field set um, as quickly as possible so that, so that players can kind of ease off a little bit, rest their bodies, um, and make their way yeah. over, to, over to Singapore. It would have been great for it to go down to, like, Beijing. And they would have had enough weeks to sort of exactly. pull out, like Mugaruz is doing. Yeah, but beyond Beijing, it's a bit... Going back to Europe, it just seems it's just odd. It all yeah. seems uh, a bit too much. Thoughts on Serena pulling out? We haven't talked about that since uh, it did happen on the show. Serena, we talked about this as a possibility uh, in our post US Open show from your hotel room there um, when we talked about, and we both kind of came down this side of thinking she probably would play, I think, in the end. Um, but leaving it open as a discussion that she might shut it down. Uh, she did indeed shut it down. Said once to, said she had been playing hurt all year, which is both true and a humble brag. And <laughs> and she uh, also admitted that the loss to Vinci hurt, which is clear for anybody who saw it and who was paying attention to anything and you know believing what made sense instead of always believing what she was telling us. Um, and now she's out. And I think it definitely puts something of a damper on the championships when she's been the player of the year to have her not there. It's a tough break for WTA for sure. How do you think, do you think it's the right move for Serena on any level if she wasn't going to feel 100%? Or do you think that it would have been overall better for her to, to show up anyway? How do you make that I think that, call? well, it's always, look, I mean, obviously this is one of those situations where I'm clearly conflicted in what, what I'm going to say, um, simply because obviously, yeah, it, 
you know, you want to make sure that your number one player is there. You want to make sure that the, 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 the player who has dominated the conversation throughout the year is at the your championships. Um, at the same time, I think that from a completely human perspective, you understand the toll that this whole season took on Serena. And, um, you know, like I'm the first one to say, like, you know, again, back before the U.S. Open that I would have lost in the second round yeah. because that was just an, a crippling amount of pressure to have to manage and deal with, um, especially as it swelled with each win. So from a completely human perspective, of course, I understand it. Um, you know, she probably doesn't want to look at a tennis racket right now, um, which is understandable because of how much that tennis racket dominated her entire life this year. At the same time, yeah, it, it would be nice if she were there, if she were there to do sponsorship things, um, you know, support the tournament and all this sort of stuff. But again, I get it. Like it's, you know, so I don't know. I don't think that my opinion on this is actually going to add to the add any value. <laughs> no, I, it's just it's just um, an interesting thing to talk about because it's one. Of, I mean, obviously part of it is being a company gal, you know, showing up for your tourist signature huge event. And another part of it is also just I would think that she'd want to get on court again. And just wash the taste of Vinci yeah, out of her mouth. That's, that's very that's true. I remember talking to her about this at some point. I want to say in 2012, Charleston or Miami, one of the, how's that both of them, when she played Stoser again for the first time after the U.S. Open final, she lost to Stoser. And after that year, she shut it down after the U.S. Open loss as well. And she said that she admitted that she had like, it was tough having that match with everything that happened there be the last match she had played for several months. You know, the, the last match... Uh, most recently in her in her memory, and so for that reason alone, I would think you know coming to Singapore, I feel like she I have to think she thinks she would win, right? She's beaten all these top ten girls so regularly. Um, why not? Why not go? But obviously she's she's thinking about slams, especially being stuck at twenty one yeah. now. That's her goal. So if she thinks this puts her in better shape for Australia, uh, by all means go for it. And I mean Patrick Mortoglu had hinted at that in an interview with. Almost uh, Isaacson that came out right before the decision. So obviously yeah. the team is on that page already. And slams are the name of the game right now, even more than the champs, even more than this big event for the tour, for her especially. Yeah. One question that I really have for next season, because there is a WTA rule that is very similar to the ATP rule that um, kind of um, provides older players or players who have played an X number of matches for the tour to have more flexibility with respect to mandatory tournaments. Mm-hmm. The ATP rules is automatic. So if you are of a certain age or if you've played a certain number of matches, you are automatically exempt from either one Masters event or all Masters events, depending on which milestones you've hit in your career, which is why Roger can play whatever events he wants. Um, you know, why, you know, Rafa will skip Bercy all the yeah. time, like, you know, or like whatever. They, they have some flexibility. Uh, the WTA rule is actually an opt-in rule. So it, it applies specifically to like top 10 players that if you opt into it before the season begins, you actually aren't um, beholden to um, a lot of the commitment rules that apply to top 10 players with respect to premier mandatories, premier fives, premieres, etc. Um, the only difference is that if you do that, then you opt out of the bonus pool, mm-hmm. right? The, the season ending bonus pool that you get as being a member of the top 10 and fulfilling certain commitments. Which is usually if really Serena, nice mid six figures, generally. Yes. I mean, like, if Serena had basically fulfilled all of her commitments this year, she would have gotten a $1 million bonus at the end of the year, which is not chump change. No. 
it's pretty nice. Um, but she didn't. And, and that, I mean, she basically started to like not fulfill her uh, commitment requirements starting with her withdrawal in Rome. So she started losing bonus points from there. But she uh, played a match cash. in Rome, though, I thought. Did she? Yeah, she played one round and pulled out to stay in, I thought. She played Pavlyuchenkova and then pulled out of Rome. Because I was there, oh, I remember maybe. that. But yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, like as, you know, withdrawals started happening, particularly with respect to Premier Fives and Premier Mandatory events, it was it was affecting her bonus pool money. Um, but, uh, and it's the irony of it happening this year because this is the year she played Indian Wells. Yeah. Which made her eligible for the maximum bonus pool because she would have been able to actually play all five, all, all five of the premier mandatories as opposed to, or four, yeah. uh, as opposed to uh, uh, in years past. Anyways, so I wonder next year if she would like opt into it. What's the what's, like if what's... slams are the only focus? Mm-hmm. I wonder if she would say like, you know what, take me out of the bonus pool, and therefore I will play. I will make my schedule the way that I want to make my schedule. I will not worry about all this stuff anymore. Um, it's an inside baseball question, but what's the advantage to opting out of bonus pool in advance instead of just failing to meet it later on? Is there a difference? Um, well, you wouldn't have to like commit to tournaments, okay? So you wouldn't be like breaking, you like, you wouldn't be losing goodwill with tournaments, right? Right. Like beginning of the year, you commit to whatever. Like each tournament knows which player is going to go, and then like as the year goes on, tournament the uh, the fields shift and players pull out, and tournament directors okay. get very mad. Yeah. Um, so maybe some of it's that, maybe a lot of it, and that just takes a headache away from you. Yeah. Right. Like she just doesn't have to deal with it. Um, yeah, sure. But I will say I know, in, term, in terms of money, I mean, Serena is making more from IPTL than that million dollars. Right. So for her, if she, and obviously I was having a conversation with somebody about Anna Kornikova recently and they were saying, we were saying that like, you know, one huge metric of success or not success, is just how much money you make at your job. And so if you're doing things, this is obviously, it's not a cornucopia, that's not what I want to equate the two at all. But if you're doing things that result in you making the most money, it's hard to say you're doing the wrong things for your career. Um, and so Serena going to IPTL and choosing that over tour and other exos, I don't know if she's going down to anywhere. I think she might be going to South America or did that already happen or is that last year. I don't know. She, she well, does she's other scheduled exos. for that Denmark exhibition with Caroline there you go. in the end of November, which is a little bit awkward given the withdrawal from singapore oh, but <laughs> i mean she'll uh she'll go and she'll get yeah. I mean, hidden giggles are different obviously because i mean she wouldn't get easy matches in singapore sure um yeah we'll see it'll be interesting uh and it'll be interesting to see how serena takes court in 20 uh 16 because I mean, we remember how nervous she was at 17 in the major count when she was one behind tying chrissy and martina and now she's at 21 which is the same sort of thing one away from graph and if having this more time to dwell on it Gets it more in her head. I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot. Serena's obviously, I think, where the story of the WTA begins and ends, even in her, even in absentia, and that will not, not be the case in 2016 as well. Let's talk about dudes playing tennis. They play the sport too. Uh, they had two 500 tournaments the last week in Beijing and Tokyo, the China Open and the Rakuten Japan Open. With two top seeds winning, so theoretically nothing too earth-shattering, uh, but I think some some enriched storylines along the way. Fair to say, if we didn't get new plot developments, we at least got more background info on our characters or something. Uh, Novak Djokovic is really good at tennis. He beat Rafael Nadal six-two, six-two in the final. wasn't quite as lopsided as the score, probably fair to say. But yeah. still, a six-two-six-two is still six-two-six-two, uh, not close considering how close the rivalry's been. 
And it wasn't surprising at all that it was not a close match. On the scoreboard, Novak's really good. He's won eight tournaments this year. He won Beijing six times. It's like his happy place, China, it seems like. Or at least Beijing, for sure. Anything different to report on the world number one, Courtney? As you were near him but not officially <laughs> professionally paying attention in Beijing or is <laughs> exactly. it same old, same old great Novak? I mean, in one on one level, it's same old, same old great Novak, but it's also great Novak. That's just seems to be getting his game is continuing to refine itself. Yeah. Like he was incredibly dominant throughout Beijing and it wasn't just, I mean, obviously it culminated against, uh, against Rafa in the end. But the thing about that final that I found to be really one of those moments that kind of dis- uh, crystallized a thought in my brain is that I thought that Rafa played some of the best tennis that he's played all year uh, against Novak in the final. He still only won four games. Um, <laughs> and as we've talked about Rafa, and we've, and we've, at least for myself, I've become pretty preoccupied about the idea of like him just getting back to his pre-2014 level. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, back, you know, and, and getting, you know, get that forehand, hit it deeper, um, have more confidence in the serve, just, you know, be better on the defense, like whatever, hit the running forehand, like all these things that made him like 2013 Rafa or like whatever. And watching the final, I was like, oh, no, he's been left in the dust. Mm. Even if I've come to kind of this, I this is what I think. I think I think that... <laughs> um, that Rafa, that even if Rafa were to reach his pre- previous levels, that Novak has just like leveled up, like a couple of yeah. times since that level. That that old Rafa would still not be able to beat current day Novak, and so that was like I don't think that I'm hot taking or saying anything particularly controversial. It's just like something that I kind That's of realized as a truth, like <laughs> as I was yeah. watching the men's final. That's a totally fair observation for sure, and. uh I think it's worth pointing out also that, yeah, Federer is doing better now than he was in 2013. I guess yeah. Murray had a pretty good – that's the one match I really wish had happened so far in 2015 was this Roger against this Rafa. Yeah. Seeing what would happen in 2015. I hope they get to play in London. We'll see. It'll be a good shot for them to play or maybe in Shanghai or Bercy theoretically. Or I guess they're both playing Basel too. But, um, yeah, it would be that was one match I want to see. Things are getting tougher for – Rafa, I think the field is in a better place. And remember, the 2013 was kind of a blip a little bit. Didn't keep quite in the trend of where the other years surrounding it were going. Sure. Especially especially that crazy Canada, Cincinnati, New York <laughs> triple. Yeah. Out of True. No, which is just a complete outlier in his life. Um, but yeah, he's doing well. And I think the match that sort of turned around for, for me, it's one match that I saw all of, was his match against Jack Sock in the mm-hmm. quarterfinals. Um, Jack Sock played won the first set so easily. It was weird. Rafa looked terrible. And then Rafa's competitive instincts kicked in, and that's something that Jack does not is not the best competitor or not the best sort of match manager at all. And Rafa sort of fought his way through that and started playing really, really vintage-type tennis at the end, beat his growing nemesis Fanini in the semis. So maybe this will come up a little bit. We'll see. I mean, it's just one week, but making a hard-court final, it's not something he's done in a while. And so under these new lower circumstances for Rafa expectations, positive, positive week, even losing two and two. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that that's what Rafa said himself is that I take positives out of this week. What was it? His first hard court final since Miami 14. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And better doesn't mean good. 
let's be clear about that. Like right. just because you're doing you're improving doesn't mean you're anywhere near where you want to be or should be. Right, exactly. Or, I mean it's all relative. It's all directional. But it was it was a better tournament from Rafa than we've seen in from him in the past on this surface. So, you know, it's uh it is positive. Maybe he can build some momentum, you know, through this uh the end of this season. Maybe he'll have like an Andy Murray light you know, kind of finish, you know, not run the table on tournaments or anything like that, but, but finish on a positive note and really set himself up in a good mind frame. Cause everybody's saying, including uncle Tony, this isn't physical. This isn't technical. This is all brain for Rafa. And it's just what's going on up there. And he just needs to get himself in the right mental place and things will get better. And I actually kind of believe that. Speaking of uncle Tony, I missed it mostly last week. What's the deal with Fabio Fanini and Uncle Tony? Why do they not like each other? I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. I feel like Pam Explain Shriver. Explain it for those of you who don't I know. I feel like, okay, first of all, I feel like Pam Shriver needs to sit down with Fabio and they can all talk about Tony and, and she can kind of talk him off the ledge on this. But, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the matches between uh, Rafa and Fabio Fanini this year have all been pretty interesting. They've all been eventful, kind of pretty much regardless yeah. of result. Um, Fanini has Very beaten him. Very the match of the U.S. Open was Fanini. Exactly. Very possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Fanini beat him three times uh, this year, twice on clay, once on hard court, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, and obviously that hard court win coming at the Open, being down two sets to love, Fabio Fanini and comes back and wins. Right that doesn't happen ever. No. Against Rafa uh, or Fabio Fanini to do that against anyone. Um and uh, and then in Hamburg, they had a bit of a dust up with with Fabio Fanini, getting very annoyed with uh, with Rafa, kind of argue, arguably getting in his face on one of the mm-hmm. changeovers and mm-hmm. saying some words. And uh, but uh, yeah, it was a bit of a perfunctory handshake after uh, after their match in Beijing. And afterwards, Fabio Fanini said that you know he doesn't have any issues with Rafa. He respects Rafa both on and off the court, but that it's different. His feelings are different as with respect to Rafa's team. Um, uh, mm. implying he has issues with Uncle Tony um, mm. and some of the on-court coaching and or not on-court coaching but just coaching that comes from the, the box which we all know happens and we all yep. know that it happens for Fabio like you know it's just one of those like hypocritical things where it's like but Fabio like you are as chatty as anyone with your box throughout a match like so you do it too kind <laughs> mm-hmm. of um, but that doesn't excuse, obviously, that Tony does it to the extent that yep. he does. So I don't know. It's, you know, I mean, as I was telling some of my colleagues, everybody thinks that the WTA is the tour with the divas. I don't know, man. Seems to me the ATP has a nice collection of their own. Let's talk. Let's shift across the Sea of Japan, if we might briefly, to the divas over who were in Tokyo, various flavors of the ATP level there. Um, and we'll start, I guess, with Nick Kyrgios, who this was his first tournament on the clock when his probation was fish, oh, officially right, relevant. Yeah. I guess no, Kuala Lumpur before that also, but oh, right. now with Tokyo too, um, and where he was now, the fines can start adding up and start counting against his probation. And apparently he got one code violation um, uh, for, I don't know what for actually, I don't know if he got a fine, I should look into this, um, during Tokyo, and he tweeted about it. Uh, I find it so funny playing hard the last two weeks i get one code violation and the aussie media is all over it you guys are a disgrace he later deleted that tweet um or somebody his, deleted that tweet or somebody deleted that tweet <laughs> and his thoughts but his thoughts are out there preserved anyway i don't even know if there's anything to say about that it's just an update on the curious and i do think it'll be very interesting how he is officiated 
the remainder of this fall. Yeah. How he behaves and if people do give him fines. Because they shouldn't be treating him any differently because on probation, if anything, they should be more of a microscope on him, honestly. Right. This whole this, the reprieve he got from being suspended uh, the first time was counting on him showing like he learned. And if one code violation over two weeks is a definite sign of improvement, that's definitely below his average. Uh, fine. But otherwise, you know, I think Nick stay on the watch for that. Most Possums, definitely. Curios and probation yeah, and tennis. You know, I mean, the good the good news about it all is that one thing that I would hope that Nick realizes, and again, I would just like to reiterate, I'm fine with Nick being Nick. I don't have a problem with it. Like I, right. I am of the on the on the grand in the grand scheme of things, I am a Nick Kyrgios defender. Um, but like, hey Nick, like you've pretty much locked down your game. You're kind of not being as uh, you know, kind of obnoxious on court as you were before, and you're still posting good results. Yep. On the tour level. Like, what, didn't he make uh, semis in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, semis uh, Kuala Lumpur, and then quarters, Tokyo. Quarters of Tokyo. That's I mean, not and bad. The thing is, that's a good result for somebody at his ranking, which has not been that remarkable. I mean, like, let's remember right now, he is ranked, after these good results even, he is only ranked scrolling, scrolling 32. So, <clears> I mean, like, that's not a ranking that should make us, you have to give a Nick Kyrgios update every week based yeah. on pure results. So he can still continue to put his racket where his hype is, and obviously the hype isn't all his doing. Um, but, you know, yeah, he still has something to prove on court, and focusing on that is still a worthwhile thing to do. However, he was stopped this week and stopped short of what could have been, what looked like <laughs> an entirely possible Kyrgios Vavrenka Tokyo final, which would have been amazing. Instead, it was a BFF reunion with Benoit Pair beating Kyrgios and then Nishikori to make the Tokyo final before losing to Vavrenka. Benoit Pair beating Kei Nishikori. Were there any good gifts that came out of that, by the way? Because I know that's a big find of yours recently. Oh, Nishikori, yeah. Nishikori gifts? Oh, what's not to love about Nishikori gifts? If you're not following Nishikori gifts on Twitter, it is gift just... Gift. I think it's just gift singular, maybe, right? Maybe, yeah. It's a Japanese account. So, which actually kind of makes it better because it's almost like I can't read what the thing is captioned as. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just, just the gift. G-I-F-E-N. Yeah, it's just the gift. Um, Kei gift. Yeah, so if you can follow it, it's great. It captures so many little Kei Shikori moments, which I think is why it's so genius as an account because you don't think of Kei Shikori as being a gifable player because right. he's he's pretty, you know, matter of fact about the way and no nonsense about the way he goes about his business, but. You know, that account does a pretty good job of catching some of the, like, the more charismatic, charming moments in Kaney Shikori's life. Um, but no, I don't think that too much came out of it. I, I didn't see anything that came out of it from from that match. But disappointing that Kaney Shikori couldn't make the final of his, his hometown tournament and play yeah. San Vavrinka, just because, generally speaking, that's a, a thing that you want to see um, for for players in their home tournaments. But, uh, but yeah, Stan Vavrinka, I mean, heck of a season, man. I mean, it, it's hard yeah. to argue with it, <laughs> you know, like undefeated in finals. What is he on a stretch of like seven and zero in finals or something? Yeah. I know he's won all four this year. Yeah. For sure. So Over, that's pretty like, solid. Pretty quality tennis players. So it's, yeah, he very good at tennis when he chooses to be. Stan so here's Lombrega, my question for you. And that's my you. caveat. But go here's ahead. my question for you. People are always sending us these long, elaborate questions, which are very daunting for us to do. Like rank your top 20 players all time. And right. we're not going to make you do that because that takes a lot of work. But let's work through together ranking so far, incomplete 
I realize, but so far, who has had the best year in Swiss tennis? There are five nominees. Mm-hmm. Roger, Stan, Martina Hingis, Baczynski, Bencic. I think you can make a case for all five of them, which is ridiculous. It really is kind of crazy. Um, I'm going to have to go Stan. Yeah? Yeah. Why? Undefeated in finals. Uh, stopped the Novak Djokovic, what would have almost, at least in my opinion, assuredly have been uh, the, the calendar year Grand Slam. Uh, such an underdog in that final at the French Open. It pulled it off. Beat Roger there as well. Um, so there is that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that four... Four titles, one of which is a major title. Um, you know, yeah, Rod, I mean, Rogers won a few titles here and there, but yeah. uh, when you Number start two. to think about, when I think about the player who is probably the most dangerous with respect to, to Novak, um, I think Stan. I don't think Roger. And so that's a bit, bit of a, uh, gives him a, a voting edge, I think, for me. Insofar okay. as he he kind of is, I think the next threat guy, um, and has positioned himself to be that guy. I would pick Stan over Roger as well. Okay. Um, rationale, please, sir. Rationale, please, because I don't think Stan leaves here with any big regrets, and Roger mm. does. Yeah. Stan kind of over again, over, and this is part of obviously Roger being unfair. I think he set the bar so high for himself, but Roger left a lot ball. of. Roger left a lot of money on the table in important matches. I mean, against the f- quite a few big finals against Djokovic. I know he won Cincinnati, but he lost Indian Wells in tough fashion. He lost Rome, which he'd never won Rome before. That would have been a big one, quietly, for him to pick up that Masters finally. Uh, and then he lost, obviously, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, both in tough fashion. Um, and so that's t- I, that's just, for me, he fell short of what he could have done. If he'd gotten any two or any one of those slams, he would be the winner for me. Um, but... Stan has just come through, and again, once we there's such a big difference between winning one slam and winning two. It yeah, really changes where you are in the conversation in a huge, huge way. And he did that to himself, and changed his legacy in a way that Roger didn't. I think overall, my vote would probably have to go to Hingis. Uh, see, that's too easy. I know it's doubles and it's that's a different scoring set, but like she won like five slams this year. That's insane. The funny thing about Hingis and Eve. It amuses me simply because this week Sonia went home to India, uh, uh-huh. but Martina trudged on playing doubles with a local Chinese player in Tianjin. That better have been a good appearance check for her. Uh, exactly. I mean, she has pulled in just in doubles more money. Last time I checked, which was like a couple of days ago, and mm-hmm. I was doing kind of like a mental adding of prize money from Beijing. Okay. I'm pretty sure she's won more money this year than Radvanska. That makes total sense, yeah. Um, she's definitely made more than Caroline. Of course. I know that that to be a fact. Um, she's right up there neck and neck with Kerber, possibly more. And you think about how many titles Kerber's won. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Not very true. Um, yeah, it's a pretty remarkable. Like, if, if you guys are ever bored, go look it up. Like, go look at Martina's current uh, year-to-date prize money totals and compare it to the singles list. It's pretty remarkable who what player she's out-earned just on the doubles uh, double circuit. Um, obviously, incredibly successful partnership with, with Sonia um, and uh, continues to do her thing. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 an, it was, it's a funny development in this season, that's for sure. It is. And this is all credit due to Switzerland. I don't know how they do it. It's kind of insane either. when you think about it. Because the other thing about it is it's not like they have numbers. 
They don't. These are the only five Swiss tennis players who matter. And they're all so good. But I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I got, uh, yeah. I mean, you see the through line with the women. Yeah. Right? Hingis, Melanie Molitor, to Belinda Bencic, both Slovakian. Um, you know, so there's that connection. Baczynski, uh, Hungarian parents that are there. So maybe it's the whole, you know, it's my ma- major argument constantly about, you know, open up those borders, people. <laughs> you know, there let you the go. let the tennis knowledge flow freely. There you go. According to when for a freer world. Um, I just looked it up, by the way. Martina Hingis is 15th overall on the tour in prize money. Uh, which is pretty good. That's Behind Ravonska, though. Ravonska's oh, okay. 10. Sorry. But she's ahead of, she is ahead of uh, Wozniacki, who's 27. Um, Bethany Maddox-Sanis also is a doubles player. is also in the top 20 at 18. Bethany's made more money this year than Azarenka. That's kind of amazing. Wait. Oh, then Azarenka. Okay, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, huh. Bethany's, Bethany's also made $500,000 of singles because she's done really well at the Masters, at start the Majors, which yeah. uh, helps with that. Uh, so, yeah. So, there's prize money updates. Uh Vinci, number seven in prize money. So it really helps to do well. You go, Roberta. Flavia's Roberta Vinci? Two, Flavia's I, number two in prize money. What? Flavia. What? I know. I had a hold up. Yep. That can't yep. be right. It is right. She's at four million. But so Serena, 10.5. Uh, Flavia, four. Garbinia in third at 3.7. Halep at 3.6. Sharapova at 3.3. Three, three. I am shocked because... Right? The reason why I'm shocked is simply because Maria made the final at the Aussie and, the, and semifinals of Wimbledon. Yeah. So, like, major-wise, she would have had major prize money coming in that way. Helps to win. Helps to win one. Especially the U.S. Open is the most money of any of them, I think, right? Yeah. So three three million-something? It must be because if Flavia and 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 uh, 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 Vinci are both in the top ten, I hope she's then the U.S. Open paid out. And I hope she's putting it all into a nice Roth IRA or something. Seriously. Because retirement's coming soon. Do you, you think so? Did you get the sense from Flavia that she is going to retire for sure? When you oh, saw yeah, her in for China? sure. For sure. Yeah. No, I, I I saw those quotes that um she gave, and obviously I was in the press conference that she gave, where she talked, where she said, like, you know, I don't think I should be um, uh, held to whatever just because I say a few words because people keep pressing her on the whole Olympics issue. She's right. like, if, I, if it's next year and I feel like playing, I'll play. And if not, then I won't. But, like right. – I think that her comments were blown out of proportion, like in terms of like, oh, she's rethinking it. No, I don't think that yeah. she is. She's yeah. <laughs> she's fine. <laughs> cool. So Flavia's fine. We're fine. We hope you're fine. Thank you for finally joining us together again in this episode of No Challenges Menu. You can follow along with us when you're not listening by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. If you want to send us a question for an upcoming episode, and we'll probably be doing some question episodes as the off-season approaches and the fall doldrums get to us somewhat, uh, send those to nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. Any other questions, comments, queries, offers, money, whatever you want to send us there, we'll be happily take. Uh, and you can also uh, subscribe to their show on any podcasting app, and including iTunes, where you can leave us reviews in the iTunes store, and we like that. Uh, Courtney, do you want to rant rave first or second? As you join us from Tokyo. Do you have anything lined up? Sure, yeah, no, I can I can go ahead and, and do my rant rave. Um, sure. I am just going to really rave on Beijing as a city. And um and the reason why is 
because I know that, and I, I think Ben has probably heard this from me a gazillion times. Like I get a little bit probably defensive of people who think that China or even all of Asia is a certain way when it's really not. And part of that is obviously I have Asian heritage. And um, so it just bothers me just from a basic uh, uh, cultural standpoint, I suppose. But in particular, with respect to China, obviously, it's a different, difficult place to get to. Um, visa issues can be difficult. So a lot of people don't get an opportunity to actually go in there. Um, yeah, uh, I, I know it, it's still a, a sticky <laughs> point me. for Ben. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I have to say, like, I've now been to Wuhan, I've been to Beijing, I've been to Shanghai, I've been to each one of these cities multiple times. And obviously, there are tons of places in China that I haven't been to that I would love to. But um, I just love Beijing and it's almost to the point where I think that I'm, I would totally judge somebody if they said they like Shanghai more than Beijing. I'd be like, Oh, you're one of those people. Get I mean, your conversation with Pete Charbo was largely like a love letter to Beijing at points. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I have to thank Pete so much. He was an amazing host. Um, just taking me around Beijing a lot this year and also last year as well. Um, and just showing me kind of what his life is like in places that he goes to and, um, the food is amazing. Like it, it definitely helps to have somebody who greases the wheels. Right. I mean, I, I suppose yeah. that if you came to Beijing and you didn't know anybody, it would be a very overwhelming city. And then because of that, Shanghai would be far more accessible because, um, it's just a far more accessible city. Beijing kind of has these nooks and crannies that, um, you wouldn't know unless you had somebody to show you. And, but if you do, it's just, I mean, it's such a fascinating city. Um, a tremendous energy, there, I think there's a lot of creativity going on in Beijing in terms of like people, especially Westerners, kind of deciding, hey, I've always wanted to own a coffee shop. I've always wanted to own a run a, a brewery or like a bar or a restaurant. And they come to Beijing and they just do it. Um, and everybody knows how I feel about that. Just do it ethos. I love it. Um, so there's a lot of just really interesting things that are going on there. And so I think the different places that I went to, one thing that I totally think that exists in Beijing that needs to exist in the States, because I think it's a great idea, is these bars where basically all that they have are refrigerators full of beer, different types of beer. And mm -hmm. you just go and you buy a bottle of beer, pay for it, and then there's just like benches and tables everywhere. It's like and a liquor store with a dining area. That's pretty much what it is. Okay. And it's great. And it's like super casual and it's cheap. And, you know, a lot of these places have like tons of imported beer, which is kind of fun. Um, so, yeah, like I was able to drink an Estrella damn beer of Barcelona on uh, mm -hmm. on Sunday after Muguruza won as a tradition. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, but but um, that was a great place. I went to this. Pete took me to this one place called Parlor that was like a Shanghai 1920s like speakeasy where all the, the waiters and or bartenders were in like white shirts and bow ties and black vests. And they made an incredible old fashioned. That's one of the best old fashions I've had worldwide. Um, food's phenomenal. So yeah, I mean, I just, I just think there's so much to explore there. And it's one of the only cities that I go to regularly. And I would put it up there with Rome as being the only two cities um, that are on the tennis circuit that I always think, man, I wish I, I really want to come here when there's no tennis. Like, I, I just want to spend time here. So I think next year I'm actually going to tack on an extra few days and hang out in Beijing. But, um, cool. yeah, Beijing, go. It's awesome. Um, don't believe everything you read and hear. Um, it's great. So my rave is totally different. I'm really, really excited that something, something I've been looking forward to since I was a kid is coming up next week. Do you have any idea what it is, Courtney? I don't. Okay. It is October 21st, 2015. 
is oh yes i know what it is it is now <laughs> there you go it is the day they travel forward to and back to the future too which is one of my favorite movies as a kid and they go forward to the future and it was like the coolest thing in the world to me like i guess i maybe part of me being like however old i was when i first saw this movie didn't entirely get that this was all i knew it was all made up obviously the future they didn't really travel forward in time but it was like some of the coolest like 20 minutes of movie ever if you haven't seen back to the future watch the first two of the trilogy they're great Read the Wikipedia page for what happens in the third. You don't need to waste your time watching it. Oh, the third is um, terrible. It's such a disappointment. It's, yeah. it's amazing how these trilogies do that. But the third, Back to the Future especially, especially because they filmed it simultaneously with number two. Like yeah. They filmed them back to back or something. Like, I don't understand how it got to be so much worse. No, but two anyway, is a classic. Two, for one, two is a classic, um, but two is really a classic. Two is like mind-bending Yeah, and it's great. what Inception yeah. wishes it was. Right. Like, you no, know what two, I mean? Like, or Looper. Or like, you know, like for yeah. a movie that was for kids... I don't yeah. well. I don't know if Back to the Future was for kids, but it was aimed. Back to the it was Future a One wasn't. Back to the Future One had some more sort of adult. That's true. Type content, but but yeah. two was yeah. So like two was, you know, equally it, it was it was fun. For, it's a family movie, right? And um, for how compl- if you really think about how complex that plot is, it's a marvel that like, you know, we understood it as kids. It's Everyone a credit understood. to them. They and they had like this great scene with a chalkboard. They really sit down and like explain it. This is where Doc Doc Brown. For those of you who haven't seen this, there's some spoilers in here. But Doc Brown, and you should have seen this movie. And really, my rant is that you should see it again within the next week. It's streaming on Amazon. It's findable by use on DVD somewhere. Just watch this movie um, in, within the next eight days. It's not too hard, right? Giving homework like that, I think that's easy. It's good. Uh, right. Uh, they go. They, he has like a chalkboard and draws lines about like timelines and stuff. And it's just like this great scene, which is obviously forgettable. You don't think of it as an iconic scene. But there's actually this movie takes a moment to care that you understand what's happening. Yep. Which so few movies do. Yep. And, and it actually, great. like, it nails it down, like, for an exposition yeah. scene, especially when you compare it to, like, again, I keep bringing it up, but, like, Inception, the exposition yeah. scenes in Inception are just gobbledygook talk, like, delivered with such seriousness and earnestness that, like, you, you're, dialogue, kind of, so. you're kind of convinced that you know what's going on simply because this person has exp- has said words seriously. But yeah. in actuality, you're like, wait, hold on, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, <laughs> Whereas, like, all. Back to the Future kind of, you know, they figured out their wormholes. They totally did. And Great so, anyway, movie. so the future is awesome. So, within the next eight days, if the movie is correct, we're going to get Flying Cars, which we haven't even come close to. Like, it's just really cool watching it. And seeing what has and hasn't happened. Some of the things like have been novelty items inspired by the movie. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been this big push towards hoverboards mm-hmm. in, in the last like year or two, which I think has to be entirely Back to the Future inspired. Because For why sure. else would anyone think of this? And they're a complete waste of money and don't do anything. No. Um, but well, they're kind of fun. They're fun and whimsical, which I'm all for. Exactly. I don't know if you follow Louis Vertel on Twitter. He's hilarious. Uh, if you don't, you should. Um, he's basically an entertainment comedian. But he just sent a tweet out, like, either last night or the night before that was, like, hoverboards are, t- are like, in the future, hoverboards hoverboards are what Bluetooth, like, uh, earpieces are today. Like, yeah. it's, like, the signal of douchebaggery. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty much. No, and there are other things that, in the, that you'll see in Back to the Future 2 that aren't there that are interesting. There's no concept of all of, like, smartphones or even cell phones. Mm. Like, there's a scene in when the family is all sitting around the kitchen table in the future and like the house landline rings and they're all like trying and they all they have like caller id that's they can figure that out but they're all like all of their personal goggles like light up and they're like oh looking at their phone like oh it's not for me that never happens anymore true so there are certain things like that and all of the 
streamlining of it, obviously, the movie was, and I read sort of an interview with the person who did it, like, the movie was made as a commentary on what 1985 thought the future would look like, or what the 80s thought it would look like. So hoverboards were made because skateboards were big in the 80s. Right. You know, other things like that. They were not necessarily projecting out, like, total outside-the-box innovations. It was more logical progressions of things in the 80s. It's like an like 80s hollow. satire of yeah. the future. Exactly. It is. Right. So yeah. now yeah. look, watching it in like, Minority Report. Right. Like, no, Minority exactly. Report was, like, genuinely trying to, like, figure out what the future would look like, with which they're not entirely off, although everyone keeps thinking flying cars, and we're so far from flying cars. And I, I don't, don't think them. that in my lifetime I'll see a flying car. Nor should you. Like, the opening scene of 2015 in the movie, where they jump ahead into a freeway, oh, it is terrifying. <laughs> like, people would die so constantly in flying cars. True. And so, and just why have them? And also, why have roads? Honestly, why is there a freeway? Why are we bunching all the flying cars together? Makes no sense. No sense. So, anyway, I highly recommend watching this movie. I highly recommend, like, dreaming about what 2045 will look like based on today or whatever. And it would be, even though I don't like people, like, remaking classics on any level, I'd be curious for someone to, like, move the ball forward and make, like, a 2045 jump ahead scene. Just use your imagination. It'd be cool. Or even, like, write it as a short story or something. It's an interesting thought, though, because back in the 80s, when you sit down and you're a script, uh, you're a script writer and you write... Um, about the future. Obviously, this is back in the time where, you know, NASA is still a really big deal, the space program, uh, all these sorts of things. There's a bit more of kind of like an optimism of what the future might look like. Oh, there's going to be all this innovation. There'll be flying cars. Yeah, Yeah. we're going to be out in space. Like, there's all this sort of stuff. Nowadays, when people sit down to write the futuristic movie, it's entirely dystopian. Everyone everyone envisions a world that has completely fallen apart. Um, and there isn't that optimism. You know what I mean? When's the la- I, I don't know when the last movie is that I saw where, like, it projected a view into the future that was like, oh, that's dope. Yeah. Everything's like, totally oh, agree. man, every- that looks rough. Yeah, like WALL-E or something. Right, exactly. Like WALL-E or Looper um, yeah. or... Um, Ex Machina, although that's not... Yeah, yeah, Minority Report. Minority Report was the last one that I remember being like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, all the jumping from the Lexuses. I was like, okay. But it was still kind of like, everyone just presumes that the future is going to be, like, some sort of weird space dictatorship with incredibly... with, like, a lot of CCTV and a very large security presence. I think our feet will be planted on the ground. I look forward to it. I look forward to seeing all you there, too. What will be... podcasts be in the future? Oh my like, gosh. Like, are we, like, is this, like, you know. If we're still doing this, this podcast in 30 years, podcast, but Jesus this is Christ. Like, yeah, this is, like, black and white. Like, <laughs> you know, sure. uh, uh, UHF, VHF, over-the-air antenna versions of podcasts. Like, down the road, they're going to be, like, insane. We won't even recognize them. Us. Yeah, it'll be weird. So look forward to that, and look forward to next week. We'll be back with you again. Meantime, thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. National Public Radio. Back to the Future 2. Daniel Day Lewis. Sunsets.
solar 